You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston. Episode 24, Moses' Sin and the Bronze Snake. Last we left off, Janelle walked us through Korah's rebellion in the wilderness. The exact time frame is unknown of this rebellion, but we do know it was within the 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. Within this 38 years, there was a base camp or centerpiece for the wanderings in the desert. The area is known as Kadesh Barnea at the southern extent of Canaan. Besides Korah's rebellion, there are not a lot of accounts for the 38 years in the wilderness. Now it's almost like the biblical account fast-forwards to the exiting of the wilderness. At this time, within a few years of the end of the wanderings, the older generation is dying off. The same generation that witnessed God's wonders in Egypt are fading and dying fast in the desert. It's now almost 40 years from the Red Sea crossing, and everyone under 20 at the time of the spy mission will remain as they enter Canaan. By the time they cross Jericho, there will be no Israelite over 58 years old, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, and nearly grandfatherless generation will be walking into their inheritance. As they advance from Kadesh Barnea to take the land, God will lead them not directly north, but instead into the lion's den directly in front of the most fortified area in Canaan, the city of Jericho. God could lead them directly into the promised land for the south, but instead he wants to drive a wedge into the land. From southern Canaan, God begins to lead them east, south of the Dead Sea, where they will eventually head north and then hook back around and cross the Jordan in front of Jericho. Miriam is the first of the grandparents to fall. When I mean grandparents, they could have been great-great-grandparents by now because they were very old. Numbers 20, verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Sin, and they arrived at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. It is such a simple scripture for this woman. Yes, she was temporarily struck with leprosy for her jealousy, but she did lead the Israelites in that great worship experience. To be clear, one of the greatest worship experiences of all time after the Red Sea. The great woman called a prophetess at times, has passed away, leaving a generation of children who worshipped with her at the Red Sea. All those children who worshipped with her after the Red Sea crossing will no doubt not forget it was her who led them with their tambourine, singing to the Lord that ancient song, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. In the next scene, we see even Moses, the friend of God and mighty intercessor of his people, fall victim to the rebellion of the people. It seems so small what Moses does, but it is actually a really big deal. Because of his action, he loses his physical inheritance and the promise of participating in the taking of the promised land. Here's the account, Numbers 20. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us 
out of Egypt to this terrible place. It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went into the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of this rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. All right, so what's going on here? Really, Moses lost his place just like that. We, we have to kind of examine what's going on here. There is a lot at play here. I've broken up the answer down into three reasons with um, some practical notes after that. When we evaluate these reasons, we have to understand that there is a lot more going on here than we can imagine. Actions are always a reflection of the heart, and thoughts of the heart repeat over time until they manifest into some form of action. Sin is not a thought or an idea, but the agreement with the ideas or thoughts that are not of God's result in the sin. Sin is the action one takes, which is a manifestation of one's heart in disobedience to God. In this case, Moses allowed rebellion, which impacted the community for years to get into his heart. Moses failed to protect his heart. As Solomon later would write in Proverbs 4, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Here are the three reasons. Number one, Moses had allowed some serious pride issues. Man is used by God to perform miracles, but the source of power is never man. When Moses says, must we bring you water out of this rock? He is taking credit, at least partial credit, for the miracle that follows. Never before had Moses talked like this. Number two, this sin was premeditated and done on purpose. It was no accident. It was intentional sin, and this is the heart of it. It was not a foolish blunder, but purposeful disobedience. All through the wilderness, Moses does all that God says, including the perfection required of the sacrifices and atonements from the laws from Leviticus. Simply speaking to a rock instead of hitting it was not a mistake. It was intentional. Number three, Moses again has that anger problem. Water from the rock occurs twice in the wilderness. Back after the Red Sea, Moses hit the rock. And in this event, Moses was told to speak to the rock, but instead Moses hits the rock. Again, he says, must we bring water out of this rock? So, so far, keeping score on Moses' anger, he killed an Egyptian, he broke the first set of Ten Commandments, and he now hits the rock instead of speaking to it. The scary thing is, is that the miracle still occurred. Such delegated authority was given to Moses, he performed a miracle incorrectly, but with the same results. That is very scary. And, and on a personal level, it's always hard to see the consequences as warranted, especially in the wilderness. In fact, in Deuteronomy, he pleads with God to still 
go into the land, into the promised land. But God's response was, no, this is the last we will talk of this. There has to be more at play here. There, there are two more perspectives to consider. The practical and symbolic um, or prophetic meaning of the act. On the practical side, the greater revelation, the greater the responsibility. Moses, who glowed from his encounters with God, had allowed his spirit to dim down to the point of serious anger toward the people that he had countlessly saved through intercession. Additionally, it adds to the known issues that no one man is perfect. Even those who encounter God in his fullness, even Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, and Daniel, they still needed a Savior. All of us need a Savior, and there is no need to elevate Moses to anything divine. He was not perfect. There was only one perfect man, and that is Jesus. There is a symbolic or prophetic piece of this story that's quite interesting, but it's a little complex, so hang in there with me. Jesus was only to be struck in once, never twice. If you back up and look at this scene like you would a parable, or, or the way you examine a dream, if you have them, is the same as the parables of Jesus. You have to take the symbols of each story out and look at them independently. In summary, Moses struck the rock the first time and the water came out. The second time, he should have spoken to it, but he struck it and the water came out. In this account, Moses represents man, the rock, Jesus, and the water, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the rock of our faith. There was two scenes. One of the rock was beaten and the other where it was spoken to. When Jesus comes the first time, he will be stricken. And the consequences is the outflowing of the waters of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When he returns the second time at the end of the age to judge the earth, he will not be stricken. But with the word, the power of God will issue forth. Jesus can only be stricken once, never again. It was upon the cross where he received the wrath of all eternity for every sinner and every sin ever committed from the beginning to the end of time. No sacrifice will ever be needed again. When Moses, not knowing the prophetic act in front of him, struck the rock, which should never be struck again, God's answer was he would lose his inheritance because he did not acknowledge God's holiness. Our spiritual inheritance was earned with that one moment at Calvary on a wooden cross. No further act of sacrifice would ever be required to atone for sin. No righteous act, no religious sacrifice. Jesus took it all upon himself that one horrible day on the cross to write all mankind to him. After this scene, the Israelites were denied passage by Edom, the descendants of Esau, to the eastern side of Canaan. And for this reason, they had to take a longer route around. And on the way, they approached Mount Hor in the wilderness. On top of the mountain, Aaron placed his garments on his son Eliezer, signifying he would replace his father as the high priest. Then Aaron died on the mountain. Another one of the grandparents has passed away. Aaron, the co-laborer of Moses, who helped with all the wonders in Egypt, and the first high priest of Israel has died, and the Israelites mourned for him for 30 days. Moses has lost both his older brother and sister. Aaron died at the age of 123. Uh, this is where I need to state, I made an error a ways back, stating Moses lived the longest of people after the flood to 120 years. 
Well, that wasn't altogether true. There was uh, Abraham's father who lived way longer than this, Aaron, 123 years, and Miriam was even older than Moses as well. And there is some evidence of a French woman in our generation, however you define a generation, who's lived longer than 120 years as well. Before we move on, there's some symbolism here that's pretty good. Aaron was the first high priest, which represents Jesus, our high priest. His son is Eliezer, which means comforter, and he can represent the Holy Spirit. The high priest had to die for the comforter to take upon himself the responsibilities. It was Jesus himself who told his disciples that it would be better for him to go so that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell every believer. After the mourning period was over, the Israelites traveled up and around to the east of the Dead Sea. At this time, a group of Canaanites from Arad attacked the Israelites and took some of them prisoners. In turn, the Israelites vowed their destruction, and a battle ensued, and they destroyed them. The final scene before Moses' death and the wars of eastern Canaan is the very bizarre scene of the bronze snake, found in Numbers 21.4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is one of the best examples of God out of time and space. When we come to study prophecies of the Bible, it's quite scary to see how God literally jumps from take, talking about one age of man to another within a sentence, without even a comma. It's like God is speaking from a different plane or dimension, and he's not limited by time. It's fascinating that at any moment, God can look at me as a boy, man, or an older man in a moment because he's out of the plane of time. This bizarre account of the snake receives no definition for almost 1,500 years, but we have the liberty in our generation to look upon it after the fact. This scene should really freak everyone out. It does me. These type of things really mess with people. Honestly, no man could have dreamed of this. It's just not possible. Why would God do this? Here is the symbolism, lots of symbolism in this episode. Bronze is a type of judgment. A serpent represents sin and the curse back to the beginning of time in the garden. Why would looking up to something that represents sin and a curse heal you? If you've lived back then or any of that time period for thousands of years, it would have made absolutely no sense. But if I was dying from a snake bite, I would have certainly looked upon this snake on a bronze pole, lifted high upon a hill which represents sin, the curse, and judgment, if it was all it took to survive. For 1,500 years, this made no sense. Or if anyone came up with anything, it had to be the most ridiculous speculation. There was no paradigm of understanding of what God was doing but instead he was setting up one of the greatest revelations of all the ages. One of the greatest revelations and scriptures of all time was set up in this very strange scene.
This is what is so amazing. It's, it's a total mystery, a total mystery, a secret hidden for 1,500 years that only God understood. It had to be one of the greatest mysteries of the ages for every student of the scrolls of the Jewish history. Why would God do this? All healings up to this point were related to encounters with God and his sacrifices or atonements. Healing through reflecting upon a cursed object made no sense. This had to be one of those burning questions of the rabbis and teachers of Jesus' day. Why would God use a reflection upon a servant to bring a healing to a body? It's had to intrigue a Jewish leader in Jesus' day whose name was Nicodemus. But before we tell the story, we have to track what happens with the bronze pole. It survives the wilderness and remains in the kingdom of Judah. At the time of Hezekiah, over 500 years later, the pole is destroyed by Hezekiah because the people are worshiping it and offering incense to it. So it was obvious the power was not the pole, which had become worshiped like an icon at this point, but the power behind the pole and what it represented. On another side note, if you look at the industry symbol for pharmacy, it looks strangely familiar. There are different variations and theories behind the industry symbol and its true origin, but one of them has its roots in this actual biblical event. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'm going to conclude the story of the fiery serpents and Jesus' explanation of them. I think his words are all we need. Before I begin, there are some nuggets here. I like how Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. Obviously, he was concerned with being seen, but I like how he approached Jesus in private. Jesus is personal. He desires relationship with everyone. Nicodemus stooped low to encounter the living God, and because of it, he received one of the greatest revelations of all the ages. If you desire a visual, I will be putting a link on the Facebook page of one of the best videos created that ties the two events together. It was made by Crown Financial, and it is titled Lifted Up. The link will be to the trailer to a short film. It is quite good and professionally made. The full version is available for purchase through their site. It does an excellent job of paralleling the action despite the 1,500 years or so age gap. Here's the conclusion and explanation of the bronze snake from John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? 
Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as the Israelites' conquest begins as they are attacked by both King Sihon of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan, a man whose bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.